James chapter 3. We're in the first 12 verses this morning. James chapter 3. Let's pray together. Father, as we open your word, we're so thankful for your love, your grace, your mercy, that you're a part of our lives, that you've died for our sins and risen again. We need your touch. We need your working, especially as we look at this topic of the tongue. So Father, would you meet with us? Would you show us your glory? We do want to learn and gain more information, but more than anything, we desire to see you for who you are in a greater way. We desire for you to touch and transform and change our lives. So would you just remove distractions, God? Would you bring a calm and a peace over our hearts and over this sanctuary? We love you and we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. 70 grams of absolute power. What's roughly two and a half ounces but is extremely powerful? It's your tongue. It only weighs 70 grams. So go ahead and just shake it a little bit. Right there. It's kind of a weird thing, isn't it? A little bit that God has created and that he's put there. With our tongue, we can bring encouragement. We can share Jesus and salvation. We can build up someone's confidence. Also with the tongue, we can bring absolute devastation and destruction destroy somebody, walk all over them, crush them. As Proverbs has said, is truly right, life and death is in the power of the tongue. Not in some name it and claim it, blab it and grab it, I'm going to claim a million dollars in the name of Jesus. But the lesson that Solomon's teaching us is that encouragement, life can be spoken or death can be spoken. Think about for just a moment Do you bring death with your words? Are you a death dealer or a life giver with your words? It brings us back to what James has already said. Be quick to hear and slow to speak from chapter one. If I would just listen more and be slow to speak, think about what I say before I'm going to say it. James is defining faith for us in this book. He's really saying this is what faith in the Lord looks like. One of the ways that our faith is going to be displayed is the words that we speak. I don't know of 12 more convicting verses in Scripture. They're very challenging. It really cuts to the heart. It's some of the most descriptive language in all of the Bible as well. So let's look in verse 1. It says, My brethren, let not many of you become teachers, knowing that we shall receive a stricter judgment. At first reading, at first glance, it seems like that this verse doesn't fit with the issue and the topic of the tongue and the rest of the 11 verses. But as studying it closely, it fits like a glove. And the reason is, is because teachers, their tongues can be used for great construction or great destruction. Isn't that true? If someone who's teaching the word of God begins to bring false teaching, they can lead people astray. They can lead people down a path of destruction. Also, when a pastor speaks and he's teaching the word of God, and you hear him saying something off color, it stumbles you in a way entirely different than your coworker who doesn't stand up and teach the word of God. Imagine after service this morning, headed over at King Supers, get some groceries. I'm in the aisle next to you, and you just hear me screaming profanities. 
You're like, I recognize that voice. That's the voice of my pastor, right? It would stumble you in a way that would be unique. If I did say an off-colored joke, you'd go, wait a second, that doesn't really fit with what I hear week in and week out. And it's for these two reasons that then James says, don't let many of you be teachers because God's going to hold you to a higher standard. There's going to be a stricter judgment that comes for those that teach God's word. At some point, when God takes me home to be with the Lord, I'm going to stand before him and be accountable for the teachings that I give and the teachings that I bring. And so really, these 12 verses are specifically given and directed to those that are teaching towards God's word, but are definitely applicable to all. So verse 2, for we all stumble in many things. And I love this. This is comforting to me by James. James includes himself, and he says, we all stumble in these things. He's talking about the issue of the tongue. And the word stumble, it's so polite. You know, it sounds like you just barely misstepped. But in reality, the word stumble, it means you fell flat on your face. You trip to the point where your face is in the mud, in the dirt. And when it comes to the tongue, all of us have messed up greatly. We've said things that we ought not to say. James included, me included, all of us included. We have great area to grow when it comes to the area of the tongue. Continuing in verse 2, if anyone does not stumble in word, he is a perfect man, able also to bridle the whole body. So we see the potential of the tongue here, that if we could bridle our tongue, then we would be a perfect man. And this word perfect is not in the way that God is perfect, that God is holy, that there's no imperfection. He's never sinned. He never will sin. It means this. It means that there's nothing lacking. There's no ingredients that are missing. Have you ever baked brownies here in Colorado? I just can't get them quite perfect. You know what I'm saying? And they make the boxes pretty idiot-proof. It's like, how hard is this? You open up the box, pour it in, maybe put an egg in, and very rarely do I pull out my brownies and go, ah, these are perfect brownies. There's nothing missing or nothing lacking in these brownies. Now, I'm not saying that these brownies are like God, that they're holy, that there's no imperfection in them. I'm just saying there's nothing lacking in them, and and I got it right. And that's what James is telling us, that if we can master our tongue, we master maturity. To master maturity is to master the tongue. Maybe you've gotten a little discouraged with your tongue, and you said, you know what? I've tried, and I've failed. It's no use trying again. If If I try, I know I'm just setting myself for failure. If you're interested in being Christ-like and you're interested in growing in maturity, then we have to get back in the game when it comes to our tongue. We've got to engage with the truth of what God's scripture is saying and saying, Lord, would you do a transforming work when it comes to my tongue? Notice also what's said, it's able to bridle the whole body. So if you're able to control the tongue, you'll have self-control throughout your whole entire being. Think about it for just a moment. Get angry. There's some harsh words that are spoken. Think of it like ping pong. You just launched it over there. Bam! And what do they do once you've launched it over the other side? Slam it right back at you. And before you know it, there's angry words going back and forth. And then somebody decides, I'm going to kick in the door. I'm going to grab this plate right here and throw it off against the wall. 
you're screaming angry words at me, I'm screaming angry words at you, and before you know it, bam, I pushed you down on the bed. It's domestic violence. Begins with words. If we could control the words that we speak, we could control the violence. Very rarely does someone just walk up to you and punch you and go, I just hit you in the face because you got an ugly mug, right? <laughs> Very rarely does that happen. Usually there's angry words that have gone back and forth. So if we could control the words, we could control our whole entire being. How does somebody end up in bed having sex with somebody they ought not to? Whether it's adultery or single and sex outside of marriage, it starts with words. It starts with flirtatious words that should not be spoken, a text that should not be given. And if we could control those words, we wouldn't end up being in bed with someone we're not supposed to. You see how this goes and see how it works out? How about this? You ever said something like, oh man, I can't live without this. It's on sale. It's on sale. I've got to buy it right now. You know what your bank account's got and it doesn't have the money to support this thing that you can't live without. So you get out the almighty credit card because it's on sale. And all of a sudden, here you're in debt. So if we could control our words and say, you know what, I think I can live without this. I could probably save up some money between now and Black Friday. Get it a lot cheaper on Black Friday and live a life of contentment. The words lead to actions. If we can control the words, the rest of our being will follow. The whole body will follow. That's the potential of the tongue. Let's look at the guidance of the tongue, how the tongue guides us. Indeed, we put bits in horses' mouths that they may obey us, and we turn their whole body. Horses are massive, powerful, wonderful creatures, and James is observing these animals. A Clydesdale weighs about 2,000 pounds, but yet can, can be controlled by a bit, a small bit that's placed inside of their mouth. A racehorse is about 1,100 pounds, runs 40 miles per hour, a little bit more respect maybe for the jockeys that ride those horses. One ton going down the track at 40 miles per hour. But you, you can take a racehorse and put an elementary kid on that racehorse, and they'll be controlled by this small child because of the bit. And the tongue's that bit. The, the tongue is that guidance. It, it guides us. The other illustration that James gives us is, look also at ships, although they're so large and are driven by fierce winds, they are turned by a very small rudder wherever the pilot desires. If you control the rudder, you control the ship. If you control the tongue, you control your whole entire being. James is looking at these ships in these ancient world, and he's saying this huge, massive ship is directed by this small rudder. You put it this way, and the ship goes this way. You move the rudder this way, and it goes this way. The rudder's straight, it, it goes straight. Even when there's wind coming against the boat, the rudder can be used to steer this boat. We know today in the modern world that the longest boat is a little over 1,500 feet long. It's an oil tanker. And a small rudder controls this huge boat. And what James is telling us is that's the tongue. Take seriously the tongue. If you can learn to tame and control the tongue, then you can steer your whole entire being. In verse 5, now we get into the destruction of the tongue. 
Even so, the tongue is a little member and boasts great things. So like the rudder and like the bit, this tongue can accomplish great things, either for good or for bad. See how a great forest, a little fire kindles. A huge forest fire begins with just a small spark. Now, does this mean more to you after living in Colorado for the last year and a half, right? We had two major wildfires in a 12-month period. I remember when Waldo Canyon fire started, we had just had our son, Wyatt. He was about a week old, and we hit that breaking point when you have an infant, like, hey, we need some help here. So I called my parents in South Denver and said, hey, can you watch the three older girls? And they said, sure. So I drove them up to South Denver. I'm driving home. And about Castle Rock, I can see this smoke that, that's coming up, this chimney of smoke. Didn't really look like it was that big of a deal. But just from the time of Castle Rock getting to North Academy and I-25, it was raging. And it had become a big deal. You can probably remember where you were in the city if you saw the fire come over Cheyenne Mountain. It's something you'll always remember in your mind. Now, how did that fire start? We don't know who did it, but somebody did it. We know it was man-made, very possibly an arson. The conditions were perfect. The wind was up. And with a very small light of a match, maybe a lighter, here's this fire that's developed, homes lost, People die in that fire. Started small, massive destruction. Then just about one year later, Black Forest, same thing, but this time on the east side of town. Again, we don't have all the details. We don't know exactly how it, how it started, but we do know it started small and then it went. And this is what happens with our words. What James is telling us is when we misuse our words, we become arsons, destroying people's lives. That's the potential of the tongue. Think about gossip. It's such a tasty little trifle, isn't it? To just hear about other people's struggles and where they've mishapped and sidestepped. Somewhere deep inside of us, there's this sick depravity where it makes us feel better about ourselves, knowing about other people's junk and garbage in their lives. And it can almost be a pastime to talk about this stuff. One of the things that I do from time to time is I'll study in a coffee shop. The church office here gets pretty busy and can be hard to get a Bible study together. So I'll go over to a coffee shop. And I was doing this on Wednesday. And I've got a bad habit of eavesdropping on conversations. I mean, the tables are so close together and people love to talk so loud, you know, in coffee shops. And it's like, I'm real auditory, so it's like I can't almost help but listen to uh, the conversation. And I don't know if you've noticed this, but if you go to coffee shops or Panera Bread on the north end of town, this is really the dividing line where our church is, and north, most of the time you'll see people doing Bible studies or talking about church. And that's a neat thing. I think that there's a lot of believers uh, on that north end of the city, but you go onto the south part of the city into a coffee shop and you won't necessarily experience that. I think it shows where the spiritual need is inside of our city. But what I've noticed as people are talking about church, there's usually some gossip that is included in that conversation about somebody at their church who's, who's hurt them and they just begin to run their reputation through the mud or some worship team that they don't like or some pastor that's done this or has done that. And sometimes they're even talking about Rocky Mountain Calvary. They don't even know that I'm sitting at the table, table next to them. And on this particular day, there was two believers and they were talking and you talking about church and Christ. And then 
they got on this topic of this one person that had really hurt them. And they were honestly just absolutely brutal. They were merciless in the things that they were saying about this particular individual. And my ears really, I was like, because the person they were talking about, I've known for the last 14 years since I moved to Colorado Springs. And it took everything inside of me to not just turn and go, oh, I know them. They're a good friend of mine, right? But I just sat quietly and let it play itself out. But I got to be honest with you this morning, is that's been me sometimes. To my shame, I've sat over at Starbucks or another coffee shop in town and been hurt by another believer and just aired all of my frustration out and not held back with no regard to who's listening and what forest fire that I was starting. Because once somebody does that and you see the person the next time, it really taints your view of them. You're trying to work through everything that they just told you about that particular person. And I've often wondered, what does that do for all the Starbucks workers and the Pikes Perk workers? They know we got our Bibles. They know we're talking about church. They see us bow our head in prayer and then begin to rip each other apart. So it's convicting to go, how many fires have I really started with my words? How about those angry words that oftentimes go against the ones that we love the most? Once we've said them, we can't get them back, and the forest fire begins to burn. Innuendos, and not sexual innuendos, but I'm thinking of that phrase that we say, and most of the time it's to family and close friends, where we're not angry, we're not screaming or yelling. We just have a way to say something very hurtful in one sentence that's going to make them sit in it. And it's usually something that implies, you're so stupid. Why can't you get your act together? You never do the dishes. You're lazy. And we don't say those words, but we really have the way of having that one sentence, that one look that all of a sudden, whether it's our spouse or our kids or your friends, if you are single and have roommates, that all of a sudden you left them very much hurting. And for some personalities, that's devastating. For other personalities, it's like the gloves are off. You just dropped the bomb on me and I'm going to drop the bomb on you. And then all of a sudden the forest fire is burning. Maybe flattery could be one of the worst, where to someone's face, we tell them, you're the best thing since the slice of bread. You know, they decided to slice that bread and you're better than that. And, and then we walk away from the conversation and we slice them like bread. You know what I'm saying? And we don't have the guts to tell what we really feel or think to their face. And so I think we all can resonate with the destruction of the tongue. In verse 6, and the tongue is a fire, a world of iniquity. How true that that is and descriptive. The tongue is so set among our members that it defiles the whole body. James says your words defile your whole being. What you say, and it infects you and it affects you. Think about when you do say something that you regret. Oh, I hate it. It's miserable for me. When I, I just, whether I say that one innuendo and it's so hurtful what I just said, or I lost my temper, or do this. I go, oh, why did I say that? And I just feel miserable until I make it right with the Lord and make it right with the person that I said it to. And it affects my whole entire being. I never feel good. Do you ever feel good after you just sin with your mouth? I never feel good after that. But on the other hand, when I worship God and I rejoice in the Lord and I speak of his goodness, my whole being feels great. 
Don't you feel great after you've really entered into worship? You've gotten past whoever the band is, whoever the worship leader is, and you enter into God's presence and you pour out your heart before the Lord and you go home and you go, man, I just feel good. It affects your whole entire being. And that's why God says, don't complain. He loves us as a father. And he says, if you're going to complain and complain and complain, that's going to affect your soul. That's going to affect your whole entire being. But if you're thankful, if you talk about how good God is and you worship him, that's going to affect your whole being as well. Continuing in verse 6, and sets on fire the course of nature and is set on the fire by hell. What James is saying here is some people go to hell because of their words. They reject Christ. And it's not just one time of rejecting Christ, but it's throughout their whole entire life where they blaspheme the Spirit. What does it mean to blaspheme the Spirit? It's to reject Christ. The Spirit's pointing us to Christ. And you may think, well, maybe I was young, I was 18, and I blasphemed the Spirit by rejecting Christ. Is there no hope for me? No, absolutely not. It's the continuation of throughout a life. Someone could be on their deathbed and come to a place of repentance and faith in Jesus Christ and be saved. But there will be those that harden their heart throughout their whole life. And they do blaspheme Christ at every turn. I don't believe in Christ. I don't want to have anything to do with Christ. Christ doesn't exist. And by that, then they ultimately go to hell in that place of eternal separation from the Lord. So we think of the atomic bomb and the hydrogen bomb and the destruction that that brings. That's nothing compared to hell. It's eternal. And so the tongue has that eternal impact upon our lives. In verse 7, for every kind of beast and bird and reptile and creature of the sea is tamed and has been tamed by mankind. Lions, tigers, bears, oh my, right? They've all been tamed. You've probably seen all of the crazy videos, especially with YouTube, of this animal being tamed and that animal being tamed. SeaWorld's pretty impressive with the killer whale. You got this really small person compared to this giant whale, but yet they've tamed this giant whale. I think one of the grossest is a cobra snake, right? Some people have tamed cobras to where like the cobra will kiss them on command. It's like, no thanks, you keep your kisses from the cobra. That snake is not kissing me, right? But man has the ability to tame all of these beasts, except one, verse 8. But no man can tame the tongue. It is an unruly evil full of deadly poison. We can't tame the beast of the tongue. Now, I want you to hold on to verse 8, because we're going to come back to verse 8 and end our study on that verse. Now, James addresses the duplicity of the tongue. What does this word duplicity mean? It's the contradictory doubleness of thought, speech, or action, the quality or state of being double or twofold. And the tongue definitely is this duplicity. Look at verse 9. With it we bless our God and Father, and with it we curse men who have been made in the similitude of God. Blessed be your name. You give and you take away. Yahweh, you reign and you do all of these things, and we bless the Lord. Then we go get into our cars. We start driving. Who taught you how to drive, you idiot? Get off the road, you know? And the kids start losing it in the back seat and say, hey, 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 you brat, be quiet back there. You know, where did that come from? One minute we were blessing God, and the next minute we're cursing men. Some people say, well, I love God. God is great. He's a wonderful father. He's died for me. I just don't like people, you know? 
If it weren't for people, this Christian life would just be, just be so easy and it would be so wonderful. And what James is saying is, if you love God, you're gonna love people because they're created in the image of God. So if I'm destroying somebody with my words, I'm destroying somebody for whom Christ died that God created in his own very image. And so that is dealt with and it's confronted here in these verses. Be encouraged because the great apostle Peter, he struggled with this duplicity. In Matthew 16, Jesus said, who do men say that I am? And Peter has this big moment. The spotlight goes on him. Peter says, oh, you're the son of the living God. Jesus says, oh, Peter, this is a great moment. The Father revealed this to you. Upon this rock, this confession that I'm the Christ, I'm gonna build my church. But the conversation doesn't end there. Jesus then says, I'm gonna go and be crucified and rise again three days later. The scriptures tell us that Peter then rebuked the Lord. It's not a good idea. He's the Lord. We don't wanna rebuke the Lord. And Peter begins to say, not so, Lord, It's not gonna happen like this. You're not gonna die upon the cross. Jesus looks at Peter and he says, get behind me, Satan. How'd you like to hear that from Jesus? It's in the same conversation. We're talking about seconds. Peter goes from his ultimate height from his mouth, you're the son of the living God, to his ultimate low, get behind me, Satan. And I think we can all relate. We can go back and forth so quickly. In verse 10 Out of the same mouth proceed blessing and cursing. My brethren, this ought not to be so. Let this sink in for just a moment. James says, ultimately, the Holy Spirit writes, this duplicity shouldn't exist. We shouldn't go back and forth from blessing God and cursing men. God wants to do a work in our tongue to where our worship of God is consistent. The things that we speak of God and the things that we speak of men, that they line up together. Verse 11, does a spring send forth fresh water and bitter from the same opening? A spring's either going to have good drinking water or it's going to be bitter, but they don't have both. Verse 12, can a fig tree, my brethren, bear olives or a grapevine bear figs? Thus no spring yields both salt water and fresh I didn't realize until this last trip to Israel in February when we were able to go as a church is there's so many figs, there's so many olives, there's so many grapevines in Israel even till this day. It's very fertile land. So when James writes this, they're very familiar with the fig tree. And they have a fig tree, they never got olives off of a fig tree. Off of a grapevine, they never got figs. A spring's gonna either have salt water or fresh. I grew up by the Pacific Ocean Every time I got in it, it was extremely salty. You knew that. You expected it. But there was a lot of great rivers there, and those, the water was fresh. There's no salt in that fresh water. James is declaring to us that what we speak is going to come out of our hearts, our nature. Jesus put it this way, Brood of vipers, how can you being evil speak good things? For out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. Now that's convicting, isn't it? The mouth's just a mirror of the heart. And all this stuff that's coming out of my mouth is because it exists in my heart. Luke 16, 45, a good man out of the good treasure of his heart brings forth good. And an evil man out of the evil treasure of his heart brings forth evil. For out of the abundance of the heart, his mouth speaks. You have a treasure in your heart. And it's evil of evil things or it's the things of God. 
Now, here's the difficult thing, and this is where the work needs to be done, is you don't have to do any work to put the evil things in your heart. Have you noticed that? It's like, where did this three-year-old learn all of these things? It's because they're sinners, right? And it's inside their heart. So all of that comes extremely naturally. So we have to walk with Christ and put Christ's word in our heart to have the treasure of his word in our mouths so we're speaking those things, the things of life, instead of the things of death. What's the mirror showing you? What's the mouth showing you about the condition of your heart? Let's go back to verse 8, and we're going to look at the salvation of the tongue. And you're saying, it's about time, because you really beat me up this morning. There is salvation of the tongue. Let's read this verse again. No man can tame the tongue. James gives us a clue on how the tongue is tamed, and it's not through the works of man. Only Christ can tame the tongue. Show me a tongue that's tamed, and I'll show you a person who's been transformed by Christ. Amen? Amen. So we have to look to Christ to do this work in us. The taming of the tongue is not going to happen like, okay, I'm, I'm tired of being a death dealer with my tongue, so I'm going to try harder this week. I'm not going to say this. I'm not going to blow up. I'm not going to be angry. And by Monday morning, we've royally blown it. How does it happen? Turn with me to Isaiah chapter 6, because we see a man who had his speech altered by God. Isaiah chapter 6, we're going to quickly look at the first eight verses. Isaiah, Jeremiah, just after Psalms and Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, Song of Solomon, Isaiah 6. In verse 1. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting on a throne, high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Above it stood seraphim, each one had six wings. With two he covered his feet, with two, with two he covered his face, with two he covered his feet, with two he flew. One cried, saying to another. Can't you wait to see the seraphim? I can't quite picture that, but that's going to be awesome. If I get there first, I'll Facebook it. I'll put a picture down for you. <laughs> holy, holy is the Lord God of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. That's what they're saying. Holy, holy, holy. And the posts of the door were shaken by the voice of him who cried out, and the house was filled with smoke. If our tongue is going to be tamed, transformed, changed, it's going to happen from beholding God's glory from having an Isaiah 6 experience continually in our lives. He sees God upon his throne. He hears of the holiness of God, that God is holy. It's really neat to study this in depth because this phrase, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts, is also used in Revelation as the elders are singing, but they add to it. Holy, holy, holy is the lamb that was slain. Because God is holy, he's absolutely perfect but he is also the loving sacrifice for our sins upon the cross. And please hear this. We have a gracious, loving God who loves us in spite of all of the wicked things that we've said and the wicked things that we will say. And when we see that grace and we see that glory, it touches and it transforms and it changes our lives. This is our greatest need churches to see the glory of God. And we can put ourselves in a place to see God's glory by being in his word by being in prayer and being in worship and being plugged in with believers, 
Put yourself in that place of seeing his glory. In verse five, so I said, woe is me for I am done, undone because I'm a man of unclean lips and I dwell in the midst of the people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the king, the Lord of hosts. We ask God to cauterize our lips. That's the second thing. After we see his glory, we say, God, I'm undone. And don't get the wrong idea. Isaiah is in a good place. He's a prophet of God. He's speaking the message of God, but he knows his own depravity. And he's saying, God, I'm messed up. I'm messed up beyond repair. I can't fix myself. And I'm not happy with the words that are coming out of my mouth, and I am undone. If you read the first five chapters of Isaiah, you're going to hear Isaiah speaking, woe is you, woe is you, woe is you. And he's speaking God's judgment upon nations, and he's absolutely right. But what he sees in this chapter is, woe is me. I'm affected by the words that I speak. I don't want to speak these things anymore. For there to be any change in our speech, we have to get to this place of brokenness and this place of humility. This isn't self-help. This isn't, I can't do it upon my own, but this is me taking my brokenness before God and saying, God, would you please help me? I'm undone before you. Notice God's response. Then one of the seraphim flew to him, having in his hand a live coal, which he'd taken with the tongs from the altar, and he touched my mouth with it and said, behold, This has touched your lips. Your iniquity is taken away and your sin is purged. Receive God's cleansing. His tongue is touched. God takes the fire from the altar, the coal from the altar, and he places it upon his tongue. One thing I know is coal is really hot and the tongue is really sensitive. If you drink a hot cup of coffee, you lose the taste buds for three or four days, right? Ah, get some soup in there that's too hot. Oh, man, it just burns so easily. This is something that Isaiah would remember even though it's a vision. It's not that he physically had his tongue burned, but he woke up and he's like, this vision is so real. My tongue has been touched by God. We want our tongue to be cleansed by the Lord and bringing it before him and saying, Lord, would you touch my tongue? Would you mark my tongue? Would you cleanse me? And the last thing is he says, Whom shall I send and who will go for us? That's the question God's still asking. Who's going to go for us? Then I said, Isaiah said, here am I, send me, be willing to serve. See his glory, ask God to cauterize our lips, receive his cleansing, and then be willing to go. Allow the tongue to be used to speak of Christ, to speak of salvation, to bring encouragement. You look nice today. You did a great job today. Man, I'm so proud of you. God loves you. God has a plan for for your life. Aren't those words so foreign in our day-to-day life so many times? Be an instrument that God uses to touch a, a lost and dying world. 70 grams of absolute power, the tongue. The tongue can be used to fuel the fires of hell or it can be a tool of heaven. Kent Hughes said this, offered on the altar, the tongue has an awesome power for good. If we take our tongue and we offer it on the altar the way that Isaiah did, there's a great potential for good. Here's a practical point. Think something to pray every day. Because if you're like me, this is something I need to focus on every day. Asking the Lord to work on my tongue. Psalms 19 verse 14, it says, Let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart 
be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, my strength and my redeemer. I love the Psalms because they're honest. This psalmist is saying, I've got a mouth problem. I'm not happy. I'm not content with the words that come out of my mouth. So God, please help my words to be pleasing to you. I got a heart problem. Let the meditation of my heart be pleasing to you. We have train tracks, ruts in our heart that we meditate all day long. Maybe it's worry, finances, fear, and those thoughts just all day long. Maybe it's bitterness, this person hurt me. Maybe it's lust, and all day long, it's this lust that's going through our minds, covetousness. Well, guess what? When we're in those places, the words are going to be absolutely filthy, a world of iniquity. But if the meditation upon our heart, if the rut in my mind, the train track of my mind is, God, you're good. Love is patient. Love is kind. Love doesn't envy. Love doesn't boast. We begin to allow ourselves to meditate on the things of God, then the words are going to follow. And we need help with this. This is what the psalmist is saying, is God help me with the meditation of my heart. Help me to choose the right path of thoughts in, in my mind. And then he says, God, my God, you're my strength and you're my redeemer. I can't do this on my own. God, you give me the strength to do it. You be my redeemer in this area of my words. We're going to close in a different way this morning. Miles is going to come and he's going to lead us in the Revelation song. Holy, holy, holy is the lamb who is slain. And first, this is what I'm asking you not to do, is don't just get out of your chair and head for the pole position in the parking lot. Like, I'm going to be the first one to get my kids out of church, children's ministry, and the first one to Chipotle, neener, neener, neener. Let's give God five minutes, okay? Five more minutes, and let's experience the Lord right now. And I'm not asking that everybody would stand up like we normally do. If you feel led to stand, please do. If you feel led to kneel, then please kneel before the Lord. If you want to sit in quiet contemplation, sit in quiet contemplation. It's not the position of our bodies, but the condition of our hearts. And let's look at God's glory right now in this song. Let's in brokenness come before the Lord. If there's words that you've spoken this week that you're broken over, begin to be undone in God's presence. Ask the Lord to touch our tongues. Ask the Lord to send us on his mission. Lord, send me. I'm ready to go, but let's draw near to him and allow him to do the work in our hearts and lives. Because if you're like me, we'll be well intending and going, I'm going to go spend some time with Isaiah chapter 6, and then we get on with our day. And that's not what happens. So let's press in right now. Let's pray together. Father.